Hi, I'm Cassandra Fredrickson. And I'm Norman Mitchell, and we're the hosts of Lord of the Rings Minute, the daily podcast where we discuss, appreciate, and delve too deep into the Lord of the Rings Extended Editions, one minute at a time. You know there's a Balrog down there, right? It'll be fine. (laughs) Have you ever wondered about Hobbit economy or how wizards get their mail? Are you also in awe of Hugo Weaving's eyebrows? Then join us every Monday through Friday on our mission, quest, thing, only on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. And this week we're discussing the novel Weird Sisters by Terry Pratchett. And to help us with the discussion, we are joined by special guest Carissa Evenson. Hello, Carissa. Hello. Welcome. We're glad you could join us, Carissa. And we would like to thank patron Scott Murray, who requested that we talk about this novel. And I'm really grateful because I've wanted to read a Discworld novel basically since high school, and I just never got around to it. And now with this request, I have read a Discworld novel. Well, in my case, I've listened to a Discworld novel. I did the Audible version, and it was a delightful performance. So, uh, Carissa, could you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself for our listeners to know why you're here and why you like Discworld? Yeah, for sure. Um, I read my first Discworld book when I was in high school, and there's a lot of them. So I think I'm maybe halfway through (laughs) since then. It's been about 10 years, but... Um, I probably, they're some of my favorites. I love them. Um, my brother and when Terry Pratchett died last year, my brother and I like had a day of mourning about it because we both like are so obsessed with the Discworld. So that's, I just love the, the characters and how it's like witty, but insightful at the same time. Uh, Todd, had you read any Terry Pratchett or any Discworld before? I had not. Um, Speaking of uh, Terry Pratchett's death, last year, the um, the Incomparable podcast did like a special uh, when he passed away. And the way that people talked about him, I was um, I was just impressed <laughs> by the impact that uh, he had had on uh, the people on this podcast. And I thought, man, this guy must really be good. And I just it was just like totally not on my radar at all um, until then, really. And then. Uh, and then I thought I'm, eventually we would get to him. And uh, and now we have. And I'm glad we did. It's uh, It was super fun. I only knew Terry Pratchett through the book Good Omens, which he co-authored with Neil Gaiman, which is one of my favorite books. And it is very similar in tone to this. It's not a Discworld book, but it has the same playful um, blend of like insight and satire <laughs> happening at the same time. And it, that one was just joy to read. And I came to that one because I was a fan of Neil Gaiman and I saw... I, I read the back flap of uh, Good Omens. I was like, well, this seems like a book I need to read. And now I, I understand that Terry Pratchett's voice was definitely quite present in Good Omens. Yeah, I, I figured the witty stuff was all Terry Pratchett. The swearing's all Neil Gaiman. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Uh, well, listeners, if you are unfamiliar, Weird Sisters is... 
Uh, it's a weird book to try and give a quick synopsis for. <laughs> it is a story of uh, three witches who end up getting involved somewhat unintentionally in uh, the assassination of a king and the succession of who should take over afterwards. That's a very uh, that doesn't encapsulate at all what this is about. We'll get to Todd's synopsis and you'll get a much better feeling uh, for this. Maybe. Um, <laughs> maybe. Based on Macbeth, if that helps. I was going to say that description and the fact that they were called weird sisters. Yes. Seemed like a, oh, yeah. a Macbeth cut. Well, that segues very nicely into some trivia I have about Terry Pratchett and Discworld and this novel. Uh, as we said, it's part of a series that is called Discworld, which is this amazing feat of writing. It's Terry Pratchett's um, comedic fantasy series, and he completed 41 novels in the Discworld series. And that is a lot of novels in one series, uh, which I think is one way reason why I never engaged with it. It's it's kind of like Wheel of Time, like I'm scared <laughs> to touch it. But now I realize after reading uh, Weird Sisters, like there, this was pretty standalone. Like I, I, well, I don't yeah. feel like I needed the larger mythology around the Discworld to appreciate this novel. Well, the nice thing about the Discworld is it's actually like four or five different series and a couple standalones that all just happen to take place in the same universe. Mm-hmm. So I'd say it's more like like Sanderson's. Um, what's that thing, Brandon Sanderson's? I mean, it, you could just call it a Sandersonian style. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a word, the Cosmere. That's what they call it, like the San- Brandon Sanderson Cosmere, where there's all these series that kind of are linked. Then like Wheel of Time, which is like one. Yeah, my uh, when I was looking into it, uh, just looking at trivia, it seemed like the character of Death appears briefly uh, in every. Discworld novel, but that's basically the only other one. But, but there are like yeah. several Discworld novels that have these witches from the Weird uh-huh. Sisters, and several that have other characters that, like, you know, every fourth novel might pick up a storyline following a different character. Yeah. Um, when Pratchett was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's, he said he would like his daughter Rihanna to continue writing Discworld novels, but she has said she only plans to take care of adaptations and tie-ins and will not be producing any new novels in the series. And the Discworld books were published between 1983 and 2015. And uh, with so many novels, right, 41 novels in this world, uh, but with a consistent satiric comedic tone, uh, he has taken on many, many different authors, genres and stories in his series. So you'll see allusions to Shakespeare, to Dickens, to uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Like if it's out there, he's probably made some reference to it within the series. And uh, when BBC did a survey called The Big Read in 2003, which was uh, meant to determine Britain's best loved novels of all time, uh, it was a massive survey they did. Uh, four Discworld books were in the top 100 of their final tally, and 14 of the Discworld top, uh, books were in the top 200. So, seems like a, a popular story. And um, I didn't go double check this, but I remember seeing a video floating around of... Uh, Terry Pratchett's computer being run over by a bulldozer, which was apparently in his last will uh, and testament. He, he asked that the computer with his unfinished work be bulldozed. And it was. And fans are simultaneously pleased that his wishes were carried out and sad <laughs> that wow. his unfinished works have been bulldozed. That's amazing. Uh, that really puts an end to, you know, posthumous publishing. <laughs> if you bulldoze. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> His last novel that was published, um, The Shepherd's Crown, was a little bit posthumous. Like it had been all the way written, but was still several edits away from being done, and they still published it a few months okay. after he passed away. But it was like finished. It had a beginning and an end and everything. Mm-hmm. It's good. I recommend it. Okay. Was it in the in the Discworld series? It's in the Discworld, yeah. Okay. It actually has the witches from the weird sisters make an appearance in it. So Producer Andrew has a question, but they're in it. 
this is a question I've had for a long time. Why is it called the Discworld? Is their world flat? Yes. And yeah, it, it is, is on the, the back of, is it four elephants that are standing on the back of a turtle? Yes. Oh, and the okay. turtle is swimming through space to the mating grounds of all the space turtles. And when it gets there, what will occur will be known as the Big Bang. <laughs> this is canon. <laughs> That was not covered in Weird Sisters. <laughs> yeah, that, that's I don't remember which book mentions it. There's some book in the intro that talks about it. I think it's Small Gods. All right. I If you need to edit that out, that's okay. No, that is 100% staying in. I'm extremely happy that I asked that question so I could get that explanation. Uh. Yeah, the world's shaped like a disc. And so instead of having like north and east, because they don't have poles, whenever they talk about directions, you hear hubwards which is like towards the middle of the disc the hub or rimwards which is out towards the outside of the disc and he's really consistent with that so it's kind of a fun little easter egg if you pay attention so, to whenever he says direction anything about directions but do they have like a a headwards and tailwards on the turtle i don't think so or, or elephants or, or on the elephants do they know they're on elephants and turtles because that was so. like in the prologue description of the world of Weird Sisters. Like that was an omniscient moment. It wasn't any of the characters yeah. talking. Yeah, I don't know. I don't actually know if I've ever heard it referenced besides omniscient narrator. Well, okay. One follow-up question on this world and its geography. Are any uh, of the stories that you've read, do any of them occur on the edge of the world? I don't think so. Seems like that would be an intriguing setting on, on yeah. Discord. <laughs> well, it's yeah. like... It's curved like a bowl, so I don't know if you can get to the edge because of like oh. gravity. Right. <laughs> so I don't know if it's convex or concave, so I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's a book that talks about someone like repelling off the edge to like look at the elephants, but I could be making that up. That seems like that would be a part of their mythology. Yeah. Like All some right. legend of some explorer that did that one time. Yeah, exactly. Well, before we move on and hear Todd's full synopsis of this delightful novel, we would like to thank our listeners uh, for coming here and downloading this. And we would especially like to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonists and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes, in which we break down newly released films, trailers, and also talk about our, our fantasy box office for this year. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss, just like patron Scott Murray did in asking us to discuss Weird Sisters. So now, Todd, we invite you to take it away and give us a full summary of okay. this novel. You might want to just make yourselves comfortable. I feel like the first thing to do before uh, before jumping into this long summary is inviting everyone to just recall the three witches from uh, Macbeth. It's, uh, I mean, usually they're represented as uh, this like very serious, super creepy uh, witches um and these witches are nothing like that <laughs> so uh as as it begins we have uh three witches uh Margaret garlic uh who is the youngest and nanny og and granny weatherwax um so Margaret is the youngest and she's invited the older more experienced witches to form to form a, co a coven with her uh, and they agree but they insist there will be no dancing the king of the land, his name is uh, Varence, and he dies, and he meets death. And as a dead person, he has no emotions, uh, only thought. 
and death informs Varence that he is due to become a ghost, in which form he will stay until he has fulfilled his destiny. Unfortunately, death can't tell Varence what his destiny will be, nor how long it will take, noting only that, quote, these things usually become apparent, close quote. Uh, the witches are meeting in the night when a coach stops nearby and a man, run, I mean, a coach as in, you know, a horse-drawn coach, not a... Uh, <laughs> athletic director. Not an athletic director. <laughs> but a coach stops nearby and a man runs unknowingly uh, towards them. And he's holding a small child in his arms and he hands it to Granny Weatherwax just as he is shot in the back with an arrow. Three soldiers show up then uh, and threaten the witches, uh, but, the, but, the, but the witches scare uh, one of the men into killing the other. Uh, and then, and the two of the survivors run away, uh, and the child comes with a rather impressive uh, a crown. Well, it's a it's a, a crown. Uh, so Varence uh, is a king, and he was killed by his second in command, uh, Thelmet, who was a duke, uh, who had schemed with his wife to kill the king and uh, and take over the throne. So Thelmet is now the king, although he's often still referred to as the duke. Um, but he's frustrated because Varence's son, along with the crown, were smuggled out of the castle just as Varence died. So the witches decide to take this baby to the theater uh, since they have crowns there, which is pretty sound logic, I guess. Uh, if you have a baby it's with a crown. the sound as you're going to find in this, in this, <laughs> this so, world. Uh, Magrat is the only one who understands uh, anything about the theater, really. Um, and so uh, Nanny and Granny are just... Uh, trying to understand what's going on as they, as they watch this play. Um, and they meet a, a player named Olwyn Vittler. Uh, I want to pause real quick and just say the sequence of the witches providing commentary on the play is one of the funniest things I have oh read gosh. or heard. In it's comedy. Memory. Yeah. <laughs> it's so it's really good. Like, just imagine these old crows. Like what was like, he just stabbed them and no one's doing anything about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So they find this guy um, named Olwyn Vittler, and uh, and he invites them to uh, the pub. And the witches propose that he and his wife take the baby, who they the 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 people ask him oh, what's the baby's name, and one witch says Tom, and the other the other says John, and so his name is Tom John. The witches decide that that they should each give Tom a gift because it it, it seems the thing to do. And many times these witches they do things. Because it seems to be the thing to do. It's very um, something very quixotic in them, uh, which I loved. Uh, so Magrat gives him the ability to make friends. Nanny Og gives him a good memory for things. And Granny Weatherwax frustrates, uh, frustrated about uh, th this confusing theater. Um, she's still trying to wrap her brain around it. And so she just wishes for Tom to be whatever he thinks he is. So the Duke is trying to get the people to tell him where the, where the baby is. Um, and the witches, uh, and he realizes that this is going to be hard because everybody is afraid of the witches. So a year passes, and Granny Weatherwax uh, wakes up with the distinct feeling that something in the world is forlorn and is drinking in the magic of this, uh, this place where they live. So she reaches out with her mind to try to figure out what it is, and what she finds reduces her to the fetal position. That night, the castle shakes and, con uh, and uh, convinced that... Somebody is trying to um, bring down the castle. 
with magic. Uh, the terrified duke consults his fool, who encourages his lord to fight the magic of the witches by spreading false rumors about them. So the fool is telling the duke that the real power is in is the power of the word, and that's the way to fight the magic of the witches. So now it's Hog's Watch night when it is forbidden for witches to be out. But Granny is so concerned about this giant, uh, like enormous, powerful mind that she can feel uh, that she runs out to a monolith uh, in the moors. And uh, it seems like this is the source of this power that she feels. And then soon Margaret joins her. And they make their way to Nanny's house, where she's having a huge party with the townspeople. And uh, because because she can't leave, because it's Hogs, Hogs Watch night, she invites all the townspeople to her house and they get drunk. Um, so dismissing themselves, the witches uh, uh, make it to Nanny's washroom and they summon a demon uh, who tells them that the land has awoken and wants a king that cares. So the problem here, <laughs> this is so great. The problem is that the king, it's not that he's a bad king in the sense that... Um, like he 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 burns and he pillages and and he does terrible things to the people. It's so he is a bad king in that sense. <laughs> it's that he does all of those things without caring, and that he doesn't really care about the land. Um, he's not really excited about being the king, and so the very land itself is is like rising up in rebellion against this king. Um, and the, so they're saying, you know, it's okay if you want to burn, if you want to pillage, just do it like you mean it. You know, that's the that's the problem. <laughs> Which I, I, I love, love the analogy they gave that uh, the kingdom is like a dog that doesn't care if its master is a good man or a bad man. It just wants the master to love it. Yes. Um, so the next day, Granny wakes up and finds all of the woodland creatures outside her cottage. And she knows that they're on behalf of the land, like a capital L land, uh, who wants her to get rid of this current king uh, slash duke. Uh, but she tells them that she can't meddle with politics. It's not proper. So witches are not supposed to meddle in these things. Uh, now we're back to these actors where we find that the three-year-old Tom John hasn't said a word in his life. But then he suddenly breaks out quoting the plays he has heard performed. Uh, shocking everyone. Turns out that he's an amazing actor. Uh, meanwhile, in the castle, Varence, who is the king that was killed initially, um, he's struggling a bit with his situation as a ghost, uh, but then he makes a plan. Um, he knows that a witch will be able to see him. And so when he sees a cat that he knows must belong to one of the witches, uh, he locks it in a room knowing that the witch will come looking for him. Then in the woods, the fool uh, stumbles across Margaret. And then he runs away. And then later, Margaret and uh, Granny and Nanny meet in the woods. And first they talk about how the people are not happy with the new king because he doesn't care when he tyrannizes them. He does it sort of uh, half-heartedly, and it bothers them. Uh, if you're going to tyrannize, do it properly. Uh, Granny tells them that even the kingdom itself is upset about this, uh, but they can't get involved. And Margaret confesses that she's actually interested in the fool. Uh, and Granny tells her that she doesn't approve of that kind of thing. And when Nanny changes, uh, challenges her on that, they have a big fight and they each go their separate ways. So Nanny now is missing her cat, Greedo. And the descriptions of the cat are really uh, pretty amazing. But it's like the most disgusting, weird cat ever. <laughs> it's the worst uh, cat. <laughs> and Nanny's missing uh, Greedo. And so she magically follows his trail to the castle and she runs into the king. Uh, Margaret has set out to make a love potion, but while she's in the forest, she runs into one of Nanny's many, many, many children, uh, who tells her that the king has locked, uh, his mother up in his castle and he offers to tell granny who is a witch. So he's talking to Margaret and he says, why don't I go tell granny? Because she's a witch. 
And Margaret is so angry about this because she's very self-conscious that she's the youngest and least experienced of the witches. Uh, she gets so angry at his ignoring her own nature as a witch that she tells him to just uh, just uh, tell Granny that she will take care of it. In the dungeons, uh, Nanny meets uh, Varence, the ghost, and she asks him to help her get free, but he says he can't uh, because he is uh, incorporeal. And so he can't, he can't uh, unlock her. Uh, Nanny's son, Sean, tells Granny about Nanny's imprisonment. And uh, knowing that once, uh, the, once they lose the respect of the people, they'll have a devil of a time getting it back, she dons her cloak and heads out the door. So she's going to go to the castle and free Nanny to make sure that the witches continue to maintain respect of the people. Uh, so Granny, she makes it to the castle. She makes it past the gates. Um, the Duke's wife is, uh, she's a, a terrible lady. She's sort of a, a Lady Macbeth kind of figure. And she's trying to get the, are you okay there? I was just making a face thing. <laughs> yeah. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to be a Lady Macbeth in the book called Weird Sisters. Yeah. So the Duke's wife is trying to get the fool uh, to help her to torture Nanny. Um, but Nanny doesn't really seem bothered by the the prospect of torture. Uh, and when the king and queen confront her with uh, their accusations, she confirms them, telling the king the exact way that uh, he had killed Varence, uh, since the ghost of Varence is there telling her all of this. So the ghost of Varence is whispering in her ear, uh, and this kind of freaks out the duke. Uh, so now Margaret makes her way into the castle, where she is apprehended by soldiers, uh, but saved by the fool, who kind of uh, has a little, you know, he like likes her. Uh, and they make it to the dungeon and she blasts open the doors with magic that impresses even Granny, who is watching from the shadows. So they get in the dungeon and they face the king and his wife uh, who let, and, and they decide to let Nanny go. But they refuse to give up power knowing the witches uh, won't actually dethrone him since they can't rule by force of magic. So the, the duke and the, and, and the duchess, they know that the witches can't get involved in politics. And so they say, you know, we'll let you go, but but we can't, we're not going to lose power because of you because you can't touch us because witches can't get involved. So back in the forest, Nanny introduces Margaret and Granny to Varence, who can now leave the castle because, so his ghost is tied to the castle, but Nanny takes a stone from the castle away so that Varence can get out of the castle and, and help them make a plan. Um, but it turns out then that all of the ghosts of the castle <laughs> follow <laughs> Nanny. And then they just kind of hang out with her uh, as long as she has the stone. And um, it's, it's uh, pretty great. And then uh, Varence asks Granny to help restore his son to the throne. But she refuses until someone nearly runs them off the road in his wagon. And Granny loses it. And she tells the ladies, if they're going to break the rules, they ought to break them hard. <laughs> um, so she says, it's, it's clear that this, the situation with this king cannot go on. So let's, let's go ahead and help. And let's do it right. Uh, in the castle, the king and the duchess and the fool discuss their current situation. The king is frustrated that people don't like him. And the fool suggests that they use words and stories to rewrite history. The king loves this idea, and he charges the fool with finding someone who can write a play that will paint the king in a good light. The fool, on instructions from Magrat, takes Grebo, the cat, into the forest and lets him go. And then he and Magrat uh, meet in the forest. Actually, she falls off of her broom on top of him. Uh, and then they talk for a while, and then they kiss. And at this exact moment, Granny performs a spell that moves all of time forward in the kingdom 15 years. So Margaret and the Fool's kiss actually lasts for 15 years, which is uh, pretty good, if you ask me, for a first kiss. Uh, so, uh, Tom John, so Tom John is now a young man, uh, because 15 years have passed. And uh, he's hanging out with a playwright dwarf uh, named Huel, 
in a place called Moorpork. And he tells his friend uh, about a dream he had in which he saw our three witches. And then they uh, they run into the fool and they go out for a drink together and they get totally sloshed. And the uh, fool finds out that they're into theater and he tells them that he's come 500 miles to find them because he wants them to write this play about the king. So um, they are going to uh, take this play throughout the kingdom or they're going to take it back to the kingdom and, and, and put on this play. Um, but they they're not really entirely sure. I mean, it's not really clear what they're doing, except that they're supposed to write a play. And so Huel starts writing a play. Uh, so Tom John uh, says goodbye to Vittler, his adopted father. And Huel is going to accompany him on his journey. And uh, Huel says some pretty um, profound things about destiny. And then the witches use Nanny's crystal ball to spy on Tom John. And Magrat borrows uh, the crystal ball so she can spy on the fool um, who, uh, who's been out on this mission looking for, uh, for, for people who can put on this play. So on their way back to the Ram Tops, which is the where this this kingdom is, Lanker, uh, Tom John and Huel run into some bandits, and the witches use some magic to help them out. And then just towards the end of the journey, the actors get lost, so the witches help them out by showing up in the guise of little old ladies, um, but none of them really like this, but again, it feels like the thing to do. <laughs> So they do it. Um, Nanny finally leads them into the city and then shows them around like a real estate agent because she's trying to get Tom John excited about this place. And, and Tom John is totally unimpressed with this kingdom. And he tells her he just wants to put on the play. He doesn't want to buy the place um, because he has no idea that he's the, the heir of this, uh, this kingdom. So the witches are getting concerned because Tom John uh, doesn't seem to have come to take his rightful place as king. So Granny sends Magrat to get information from the fool about when the play is to take place. He isn't supposed to tell her, but he thinks he has a right, that she has a right to know what he isn't telling her. So he tells her everything, including that the Duke <laughs> will be expecting the witches. Uh, so that night the witches arrive at the castle and the fool lets them in because they promise him there won't be any trouble. <laughs> so, <laughs> promise me there won't be any trouble. They, oh yeah, uh, of course, just let us in. So he does. Uh, so the play gets off to a pretty rocky start as the players scramble to get everything ready. Um, their, their giant crown has been lost. So Tom John playing the evil king has to grab this simple crown that nobody ever uses because it doesn't look very kingly. And this, it turns out is, is the real crown, uh, that, that, that came with him when he was a baby. So, uh, the witches are incensed at the way the play depicts them because there are three witches in the play played by men dressed as women. Um, and they're, they're really, really upset about this. And granny begins to realize that the power uh, the power of words to warp reality. And she sees how she and the other witches are being turned into a laughingstock before her very eyes. And it makes her very, very, very angry. So Tom John gets the feeling that this play is, is the play itself is trying to change itself even uh, as they're trying to put it on. So in the middle of them performing the play, it's like the, the words are changing themselves in like in their mouths as they're speaking uh, and feeling overwhelmed and realizing he doesn't have to be on stage for a while. Tom John goes outside to get some air, uh, but he's haunted by the presence of his father's ghost. And so he, um, he runs away for a little bit, but he'll be back. Don't worry. So the Duke feeling that he has seen enough uh, or of this play, he orders his soldiers to arrest the three witches, but the dimwitted guard uh, arrests the actors playing the witches rather than the witches themselves. And so the witches themselves are hiding behind the stage, thinking uh, about putting a spell on the actors so that they'll stop doing such a terrible portrayal of them when Huel, the playwright, comes in and mistakes them for the actors who were just hauled off by the king's guard, and then he tells them to get up, the, up on the stage, which they do. So now we have the real witches playing fake witches in the in the play. 
then everything hits the fan. So in case you, <laughs> it's at this point where everything hits the fan. <laughs> it was going pretty smoothly until now. It was going really well up until this point. So Tom, Tom John returns to the stage, but nobody can seem to remember their lines. The witches, shocked at the terrible, terrible state of the actor's cauldron, are talking among themselves in, in, in a most undramatic fashion. The storm machine breaks, but then a giant, real giant thunderstorm actually appears with lightning striking down parts of the castle and, uh, and thunder so strong, it shakes the foundations. Uh, the actor who is to play death is really struggling to, to get these three lines that he has to say just right before he goes on stage. But don't worry, actual death shows up, snaps his fingers, pronounces and pronounces the word forget. And then death reflects on how with the theater, humans have created their own version of the world. But instead of making it a paradise, they've filled it with hatred, fear, tyranny, and so forth. Uh, Death is intrigued. He's also there for a soul. And so he does a little tap dance because he's very excited. Uh, so by, by now, the play has magically become a perfect representation of how the king, uh, how the duke killed the king with the encouragement of the duchess. Um, death, surprised that everyone can actually see him because they are expecting to see death, um, <laughs> forgets his lines. So, so death itself <laughs> is now on the stage portraying death and nobody's supposed to be able to see death because you don't expect to see death. Uh, and so, because you don't expect him, you don't see him. But if he's on the stage, when you're expecting to see death, then it turns out you can see him. Uh, and so he gets flustered. He forgets his lines, but Tom John prompts him through it. Uh, and when the Duke sees what is happening, he screams out that this is not how the King's death happened. Although he of course doesn't know exactly how it happened since he was quote unquote sleeping at the time. So um, so then the fool jumps up and shouts that he actually saw the duke kill the king. And the duke denies this and grabs a knife and stabs the fool who falls into Magrat's bosom and then throws away his fool's hat, <laughs> thinking that it is too bad that he had to die just when life had gotten so good. Uh, the duke then stabs several other people, and finally he stabs himself. But then Granny and Nanny realize that the knife was a fake stage knife. When the duchess, then the duchess and Granny face off, and Granny knocks down all of the walls inside the duchess's head showing her her true self thinking once the duchess realizes who who she really is that i break down all these walls that have been protecting her from her her evil self uh then she'll be incapacitated but it turns out that the duchess isn't really bothered by the fact that she's a horrible person uh she's proud in fact of the woman that she's become so then nanny just knocks her out with a frying pan and the witches tell tom john that he is the rightful king meanwhile the duke is wandering the halls of the castle telling death that he is going to be an excellent ghost because he thinks he's dead because he stabbed himself <laughs> with a stage knife not realizing well, he's that it was so a crazy. By this point. <laughs> so, so he's wandering the castle, uh, telling Death that he is going to be an excellent ghost. But Death tells him he can't be because he isn't dead yet. Uh, and then, then the Duke actually falls off the battlement and dies. And Death says, "Now you can be a ghost." Uh, so now the witch has announced that Tom John is the new king, um, but he refuses, saying he's sorry, but he's not going to be the king. So the witches put uh, the fool on the throne instead. Uh, a month passes, and the fool is now the king. Tom John continues his acting career. The duchess escapes from her prison, but she's cornered in the forest by wild animals and eaten. The witches get together and chat for a bit, and then they each go home. The end. Great summary, Todd. Of a difficult look to summarize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, such a fun story. Mm-hmm. And the prose is so amazing on this. He, Terry Pratchett can just paint a picture and turn a phrase and make you laugh even as like you're thinking deeply about something at the same time. Yeah. We mentioned earlier, Neil Gaiman and I, I, 
I, I can't put my finger on what the difference is between the two. I feel like there are some similarities. I feel, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong on this. I feel like uh, Pratchett's style is a little bit lighter than Gaiman's. Um, yes. Like mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less self-consciously poetic, but mm-hmm. but really, um, like it's deceptively poetic, I think, in a way that, uh, that Gaiman's isn't. Does that make yeah. sense? To me, Pratchett reminds me a lot of Douglas Adams, but if Douglas Adams, like, wasn't a nihilist who didn't believe in <laughs> human goodness. <laughs> like, if Douglas Adams had any faith in humanity, he would get Terry Pratchett. <laughs> yeah, I, and I, I think our touchstones are these British writers because there's just something that feels like British comedy when I'm reading Terry Pratchett. Yeah. And I can't. 100% point and, and like lay out what is different from American comedy and satire versus British comedy and satire. But I know it when I see it and this one's British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett had, I have had been friends for like years and years before either of them got famous. Like they huh. met as like journalists before they started writing novels. And so I think that kind of friendship, they have very consciously influenced each other in their writing styles. Interesting. Um, Todd, I like what you said about it being like deceptively deep because it's so funny as you read it. My favorite quote in the book came from the witches. And I think this is the moment when they're, uh, they realize that the crowns that the actors have been wearing on the theater, this is when the witches are trying to wrap their heads around what the theater is, (laughs) (laughs) what acting is and the deception of it all. They realize that the, the fake crowns, which they thought looked so good on stage are just cheap metal and glass. And there, uh-huh. there's nothing really there. And then they look at the real crown that the child had. And it's just this, it's a pretty simple looking crown. And they said, and, and one of them says something about how the fake ones from the stage actually looked more like crowns than the, the real one that they're holding in their hands. And one of the weird sisters says, things that try to look like things often do look more like things than things, <laughs> which makes no sense, but makes perfect sense. And actually is a theme that shows up throughout this entire novel. Like, I think that is the theme of this novel is um, this, you know, the performance and, and appearances and trying to rewrite history and make something it, into what it's not. And people start to accept the fake version of it more than the real version of it. That's what this whole thing's about. But it gets summed up in this absurd sentence of things that try to look like things often do look more like things than things. Mm-hmm. And, and that's even how and like, witches the, uh, trying to be witches, right? Yes. The, the actor witches get arrested by the guard because they look more like witches than the real witches that are running around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and there's a comment when they're watching the play towards the end. Granny has this epiphany that saying, like, even though this didn't happen the way that they're portraying it, this is now more true than what actually happened. Like, I think that's that same. I'm trying to find the exact quote. I have the book out. but Yeah, I know the one you're, you're talking about. It made me think about the fact that, like, some of our world's thoughts on British history are shaped by Shakespeare. And that's inaccurate. <laughs> Like, very inaccurate in some cases, but we know that era of British history through some of Shakespeare's history plays, and those inaccuracies have just kind of been adopted into the world consciousness as to what the history was. Mm. Reminds me a little bit of our conversation about Kubo, the end of Kubo, and mm-hmm. like the power of narrative to shape reality, and um, it it's it, it's at, at the same time. Um, kind of a comforting and amazing thought and also a terrifying one. Um, but, but yeah, we see it on full display here. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, the uh, the fact that the king goes, the, uh, or the duke, I guess, just to avoid confusion, the duke, who is now the king, but, but the murdered <laughs> the king, that he orders um, a play to be written to tell the version of the story that he wants to have performed. I mean, it, it, this is kind of like a narrative version of, you know, the classic phrase that winners write the history. Right? Yeah. And he's trying to rewrite it. Um, and I think the fool, it's the fool who says something really simple. Like he's trying to convince everyone, but mostly himself uh, <laughs> about the way this is. And that made me think about like, um, I mean, we see story after story in the news of people who present themselves as good, but have done horrible things. And I'm wondering yeah. if at some point they tell themselves a story of who they are. That's the good version that they really are able to excise or ignore um, the, the negative acts that they've done in their past. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, there's a there's a show on Netflix that um, I watched the other day. It's called The Investigator. Have you guys seen this? I have not. It's um it's about a true so it's a documentary uh, that's a true story of um, there's a guy in prison uh, right now for uh, having murdered his wife, but they never found a body and it's like incredibly hard to pin a murder on somebody if you don't have a body. Uh, but they, but they did. And, um, and so, but the guys never confessed to the murder and he has a daughter now who is, I mean, this guy's been in prison for like 20 years or something. And, um, the daughter now is a woman and she wants to know the truth about what happened. So she hires this like hotshot investigator, like celebrity investigator. And now he's going to go and investigate the crime uh, and try to get the truth of this and maybe try to get a confession out of this guy from prison or something. So the reason why he um, he ended up being caught was uh, was not because of the disappearance of his wife, which he actually was able. I mean, he pulled it. He pulled it off like flawlessly um, and it looked like she ran away. And then um, it was years later that there was a, he, um, he perpetrated a, a fraud, like an insurance thing. He faked his own death and he got caught. And then that was when the police started investigating him and they, they were able to uncover the, the murder of his wife. Um, all of this to say that when, when he did this fraud, he was with his lawyer and the lawyer is is like totally open to being interviewed by this investigator. And there's this amazing scene where the investigator pulls up all of this evidence that says that the lawyer knew that this guy was not dead when he, when he said he was dead. And the the lawyer has been telling him like he took him on the boat and he said, Oh yeah, this is what happened. And then we got on the boat and then he fell out of the water while I was asleep and he was lost at sea. And, and the, the investigator's like, dude, you are totally lying. Like you're totally lying to me right now. I have all this evidence that says that you're not. And to, to watch this old man's mind, like start reeling as he, as he comes to realize that like this narrative that he has told over and over and over again is a lie. And, and, and the, the investigator's like, do you want to change your story? And he's like, I've told this story. He says, I've told this story for so long that I guess I just believed that it was true. it's amazing it's it's uh, it's it's just shocking when it happens um it's really gripping television (laughs) uh (laughs) but uh but yeah it reminds me of that that you tell the same story over and over again that eventually it just it starts to feel true even even though you know deep down that it's a total fabrication the other thing that i think is interesting about this is that he, he tries to rewrite history but it doesn't work 
I mean, like, like history fights back against him. It's, it's magic. It's the land and it's reality that pushes back against him and, and makes it so that he cannot rewrite the history books, which I think is pretty interesting. I I don't know that that is what we would expect. Real quick, uh, tying into both what you, uh, both things that you just said, and this is a much less um, terrible one <laughs> than, than yours. I was reading um, the book uh, Alexander Hamilton or Hamilton, the revolution about the musical Hamilton. Uh-huh. Um, and in it uh, near the very beginning, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda says like, there's this mythologized story that I thought was true about me on vacation at the pool in Mexico, reading Chernow's Hamilton biography and texting um, this is someone who became one of the producers, I saying, "I've got to do something with this story. Like, I've got to write a hip hop album." Like, at first, it was gonna be a hip hop album about <laughs> Alexander Hamilton's life, and he said, "He said that that is the story that in my head was true." But when we were researching for this book to put together the history of the musical, we discovered that text message was sent like three days before my trip to Mexico. <laughs> so I must have. He, oh, he's like, crazy. I must. I must have flipped through the book some before I went to Mexico, but I, I like I know I read the book while I was on Mexico, and there were text messages from when he's in Mexico reading the Alexander Hamilton biography. But he, it wasn't until like he was actually researching the true history of how they came up with all the idea of doing this Alexander Hamilton musical that he realized the version of the story that he's told on late night shows and that anyone who's a fan of the musical has heard was off by several days, and he had actually probably started reading the book before lying next to a pool in Mexico. Wow, crazy. I, I I think this idea is fascinating that um I mean it 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 feel this novel feels so postmodern in some ways and it's like oh it's a you know destruction of the grand narrative and um and the uh the elevation of um I guess small narratives and the power of the power of narrative and we can change things. And like, we live in this post truth world where fake news and you can make anything true if you just sort of believe it. And and people talking about um, like, this is my truth or this, this feels true to me. And so it must be true. Uh, Alternative facts. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much, there's so much in this novel that feels like that, but then I, I have, I, I just keep like pinching myself and remembering, no, like truth wins in the end. Uh, I yeah. mean, sort of wins in the end of this where it pushes back and it says, no, you can't, you can't do that. You can't just make a story and ever have everybody believe it because reality will push back. Like reality is a powerful force. It's a force strong enough to, to, to put granny, uh, granny into the fetal position, right? Like that's the force that's pushing against. I, I just think it's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, that is. Well, and it's interesting because to me because it seems almost really optimistic, I guess, about the power yeah. of truth because of how much like history has been rewritten in the past and like things that we understand about history that if that you can look in like, you know, we all grow up thinking George Washington chopped down the cherry tree or that I don't know. Abraham Lincoln never told any lies or anything. And so that, and to find out that maybe some of those things aren't, I don't know what I'm saying here. I guess I feel like in real life, rewriting history works a lot better than it does in this book. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, the question for me would be, if, if truth, if reality, like capital R reality has the power to push back against a false narrative in, in the story, 
is there a chance that capital R reality or capital T truth has uh, the same kind of chance to push back against a false narrative in our world? In real life, yeah. Yeah, despite what we, despite all appearances. (laughs) Because it seems right now (laughs) that like capital T truth is fighting a losing battle. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe one of the messages of hope of this novel is that ah, don't count truth out because <laughs> in the end, it'll because it's a powerful force. Yeah. Were there any particular characters in this story that just stood out to you that you want to make sure we, we touch on? This is one of those where I think there's so many characters that were fascinating to me. I don't think we can say we're talking about one single character for this podcast. We have to talk about the witches. Yeah. <laughs> all right which which one or all three how do you want to tackle it <laughs> i love granny weatherwax she's my favorite i think she's amazing why she's just has this no nonsense approach like this is the way things are this is the way things are going to be and it's interesting because it seems to be a very absolute kind of stance like witches do this witches don't do this but she's still able to, I guess, change and adapt when she needs to, though she won't mm-hmm. ever admit that she actually did. <laughs> and I don't know. I think her like stoicism, her, her interactions with Nanny Og, where they're both so opposite from each other, but they're like secretly best friends who have to pretend they hate each other for their own <laughs> pride. I don't know. <laughs> She's which just, is the witch that gives the example about um meddling being like swimming like the i think whether waxers that nanny Og. i think Magrat says it like sarcastically saying like oh like mm. saying you're never gonna meddle unless you need to is like saying you're never gonna swim unless you end up in water and nanny Og's basically like yep yeah it's kind of like that. that makes sense it's like that yeah you know you don't want to drown <laughs> yeah. and we don't want to meddle but we have to mm-hmm. at this point I think that you've really uh, pinned Granny's character in in pointing out like her like this deep strength inside of her uh, and this um, flexibility, like her ability to adapt and um, and to recognize the the need to change, um, <laughs> like her willingness to work with Magrat and just how crazy <laughs> Magrat is in her um, just go along with it, like wanting to like candles and everything has to look right. Like, she's probably the most quixotic of the, of the characters. I think like mm-hmm. everything has to look like the books that she's read. And, um, and Granny's just like, uh, no, we're not dancing. Okay. Like, yes. Okay, fine. We'll, we'll meet. We'll be a coven. We'll, we'll meet under the full moon, but I'm not lighting a candle. I'm not dancing. And everyone's Granny like, has- okay. <laughs> the way that they Granny kind of negotiate oh, what kind of witches they're going to be is uh, awesome. Yeah. Granny has this line where they're looking around Magrat's cottage and they're just like, what? Like she has all these occult symbols on the wall and all these flowers and candles. Like this is ridiculous. And Granny Weatherwax is like, well, when I was a girl, we had a lump of wax and a couple of pins and had to be content. We had to make our own <laughs> enchantment. <laughs> I think that's just such a Granny Weatherwax like line. Just like when I was a girl, things were different, and we had to walk uphill both ways. When they're summoning the demon, and and they're using just like whatever they have on hand, and and McGrath is just floored, like because the Dude. spell the spell calls for all of these super special ingredients: eye of newt and 
whatever dragon's tail. And they're like, we don't have that. We just have like flour and water basically, (laughs) but but we'll just use it anyway. And the spell works. And McGrath has like no idea how it's working, except that um, obviously their magic doesn't come from uh, like reading spell books necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that it's mentioned much in this book, but in a lot of the other books, Granny Weatherwax talks a lot about how being a witch isn't really doing a lot of actual magic. It's, she, um, I think she uses the word in here. She refers to it as headology, oh, yeah. psychology. I think that's interesting that like she can do magic and she's crazy powerful, but most of her, her power and her influence comes from the fact that she has this really deep understanding of how the world works and how people work. And she doesn't necessarily care about people or their feelings or anything, but she understands them and how... She's the one that had the story about the thief, right? That was a great example of the headology. I think so, yeah. That uh, one time a thief broke into her house, which she says no thief ever breaks into a witch's house except the one time. And now no thief ever will because she did the worst thing possible to him. Nothing. She would just smile at him. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes. Every time she saw him in town, she'd just look at him. And eventually he just left the country. (laughs) Because he's waiting for uh, the worst, you know, something worse, which in some ways you also see that with um, the Duke, like the most horrifying thing that happens to him is what he does to himself Mm -hmm. uh, because of his guilt with the blood, which you get, you know, the very Macbeth where he's obsessed with washing the blood off of his hand Mm -hmm. to the point where he, um, so it starts by washing and then it just references more and more things that he's done to his hand and the less like a hand it looks like like he's talks about borrowing a file mm-hmm. from the blacksmith <laughs> to try and wash the blood out of his hand and a grater from the torturer's chamber and at the by the end it says like, it's more of a stump than a hand after yeah. a decade of him trying to wash the blood out um i uh, amongst the three witches i did like uh Margaret's, like her naivete like uh-huh. a, a both like she wants to be the most by the book of any of the witches because mm-hmm. she's she's still learning how to be a witch. And the other ones, it's like, you, we don't have to think about this anymore. <laughs> like, we really don't have to study the textbooks and do it exactly. We just do it because we know how. And she's like, no, we're going to study out everything. But then uh, one of my favorite moments of the naivete is um, when they were at the pub and someone had made uh, like like made a pass at her and she didn't know what it meant or what <laughs> and she was talking to, to granny and granny says well you've you've been a you know you're midwifery and she's like oh yeah i've helped with the birth of many of a child and she and uh, granny says like but you know about the previous and she's just like no what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> but the previous is now my favorite euphemism for sex the previous you know about the previous <laughs> Oh, She's man. so great. I feel like I, McGrath would have like a super earnest lifestyle blog or something, <laughs> YouTube channel. <laughs> and I love it when like, she blows she's... up that door. Yes, yeah. in the castle, and she doesn't know quite know what she's done. <laughs> and Granny's like, "Wow, that was impressive." <laughs> you know, it's just a man. Such great characters. Um. How would you compare the these three witches to the three witches in the witches in the in not the witches but um hocus pocus? Oh wow! Ooh. Hold on, I've got to do a little mental work here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I I want to say that like Magrat is closest to the Sarah Jessica Parker one, but that's just because they're both young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like no, I, I I'm sure. 
the witch, Sarah Jessica Parker's witch from Hocus Pocus, knows all about the previous. So I don't know that that naivete is really there. I mean, I feel I feel that was the first image that came to my mind when I when I started reading this book was those three witches um, because there's something. I mean, there's something very silly in the way that these witches interact with each other, like there is something silly in the way that those witches interact with each other. Um, but I feel like these witches are far more uh, grounded. And uh, um, I don't know what the word is. I want to say capable, but I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah. They're, I think, wiser. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> they talk about, was, like, if you're not careful and do too much magic, then you'll end up like old black Alice and go around the bend and build a gingerbread house and eat children and like <laughs> start cackling. And they say, you know, like it's not good to be by yourself too much in the woods. Cause then you, you start cackling and you start eating children. And like, that's no good for the brand of witches and stuff. And I feel like they would disapprove of the witches from Hocus Pocus on those grounds. Like oh, yeah. they're, they're cacklers. They're, they don't have control of themselves. They're just, doing too much magic for the fun of it. I agree. Well, isn't, isn't there a line in this where they say like the, the most powerful magic is actually knowing when not to use it. And yeah. It, generally you're not going to use magic. <laughs> it seems to be part of the, what it means to be a witch. Yeah. For listeners who haven't listened to every episode, we did talk about Hocus Pocus last October and that's why we're bringing them in now. But also last October, we talked about um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which is about magicians in England. And in that, there's this counterpoint of Jonathan Strange, who's the young upstart magician who just does it by feel um, and and without being concerned about the proper ways to do it, which in, in this instance aligns him more with the older witches who just say, well, we do magic because we do magic at this point. And Mr. Norrell is very much about studying magic and understanding the theory of it and doing it exactly as it is in his books. He loves his books, which lines him up more with Magret in this book. I think that um, in, in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, uh, there's also, even though Norrell is the older of the wizards, I feel like there's a, there's kind of a, a child, like, a, I don't, I don't know if I want to say childishness or like there's something childlike in his nature um, that like I feel like their their roles are reversed over the over the course of that series, and towards the mm-hmm. end, he seems more childlike than uh, than Strange. I, I mean, would agree with that. <laughs> than uh, Jonathan Strange, not more childlike than Strange, <laughs> because he is also uh, quite strange, but he's not Jonathan Strange. <laughs> things that look like things are often more things than things that are things. Yes. That's such a great line. <laughs> uh, any other characters that you want to talk about? Well, I guess we we talked about uh, Margaret and Granny. Granny. Oh, we had a nanny. Oh, yeah, nanny we Og. talked about Nanny Og. She's great. <laughs> Why? Why? What is so great about Nanny Og? I agree, by the way. I she's, just want us to dig into it a little more. I just think she's a nice contrast to Granny. Where Granny's so like rigid and this is the way things are. And Nanny's like... Like, witches aren't supposed to get married, so Nanny gets married three times and has 15 kids. And, <laughs> and a lot of grandkids, too. Yeah, yeah. And Witches aren't supposed to go out on Hog's Watch night, and so she invites all of the town into her house for a huge party. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, like, witches are supposed to be all reserved, and she's just this drunken, crazy person. And yet she's still... <laughs> This ins- 
insanely good witch. And she doesn't and she seem th- to have a need to like prove her status. Like granny kind of seems like she always needs to be the one in control in the room. And like nanny Og just knows she's fantastic at what she does. So she doesn't feel like she has anything to prove. She's like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and she is very cool under pressure as we found out in the torture chamber. Yes. <laughs> she's so great in there. <laughs> she had the best responses to everything. When, uh, so the, the Duke and uh, the Duchess try to do like psychological torture on her in anticipation of what's going to come in the, in the physical torture and everything they say, she's just going like, okay. <laughs> like, and then we're going to burn you. All right. <laughs> what, what's that thing over there? That's the iron maiden. Can I have a go at it? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. She's awesome. I love when she's playing I spy with the King's ghost with like all the different torture <laughs> instruments. <laughs> is there anything that we 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 can't not mention i want to talk about the king's ghost and the relationship that the land and the witches seem to have with the king where they kind of say he was a bad guy he did a lot of bad things but he was very royal about it <laughs> and he did it appropriately and so so they don't mind and i could never quite decide what i felt about that whereas the duke's doing horrible things but he's doing it in the wrong way so they have to get rid of him is it like a matter of expectations? Like, I don't know. Like, well, yeah, kings are always like this. So whatever. But this guy's being evil differently than we're used to. So. And it seems like uh, the king, the ghost king, was a little apologetic when he was evil. Like they said, well, he burned down, a, he, he, you know, he burned down houses. But it was also, it was good for the economy because it kept, uh, you know, the construction crews employed. And he was often paying them after he burned the house. He paid the construction crews to go rebuild stuff yeah. for and the, well, like his out, the other thing is like his outrage during the play when the, uh, the the false history was being presented in the play, which is very. I mean, this obviously has Macbeth going on, but it has a lot of Hamlet going on inside of this weird history oh, yeah. novel too. Mm-hmm. Um, but the false history is being presented, and he's like, "I never did that. I never did that." Well, I did do that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like the witches also have a similar moment where like we're not like that. Well, okay, that one, yes, I did that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for I'm looking for a quote by I think it's by Schopenhauer. Oh, I could be wrong. Uh, this this question of um of what the what the difference between these two kings is um it reminds me of the distinction between so like what is the what is the opposite of love and everybody would say hate but uh but some philosophers would say the the opposite of love is not hate but indifference. Oh yeah yeah. And that love and hate are actually two really similar emotions um and that the- Todd, you've uh you've quoted this as ellie weisel um before on this um have on i the podcast yeah huh. <laughs> uh holocaust survivor yeah i feel like it's been a while since i've had this oh I've that was had, an early one since yeah. my yeah, mind yeah. has been thinking about this but but anyway th- this idea Google that it. it's ellie weisel is it okay um so yeah, the, this idea that the opposite of uh, of love is indifference, and the the problem with the Duke is not that uh, that he hates the people; it's that he's indifferent to the people. It's not that he hates the land; so he's indifference to it, and and that they would rather have somebody who like really truly hates them, uh, because at least then they matter. And there's, there's an emotional attachment that's been formed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'll take that. That's fair. That makes sense. 
All right. Well, Chris, I think we're about the, at the end of our discussion of Weird Sisters. And as a first-time guest, we want to give you the question that we give all of our first-time guests, which is, um, because this is a podcast about great characters, if you could have a dinner party with any three to five characters from any fiction ever, who would you want to have around just for the conversation that would take place during a dinner party? So I have two for sure. I've been thinking a lot about Granny Weatherwax in the last bit because I've been reading... Weird Sister, rereading Weird Sisters and reading another book that has her in it. And I've also been rewatching Downton Abbey lately. <laughs> and I just had this amazing image in my brain today of what if you took the Dowager Countess, Maggie Smith's yes. character from Downton Abbey. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I knew where this was and going. And <laughs> set her at the same table as Granny Weatherwax. And it would be glorious. A glorious day that would be. Well, now, if they ever do make a film adaptation of this, I want Maggie Smith to play. Well, I was thinking about that. Yeah. yeah, she would be the best. And like, yeah. I don't know, um, Betty White or something is Nanny Og. I don't know, but um, yeah. So those two for sure, just for the scathing, passive aggressive comments. And then, other than that, these are more individual characters, not necessarily part of the group ambiance um president bartlett from the west wing be there'd be some good conversation there first character we ever discussed on this show oh really yep yeah very nice excellent character and i feel like i was having a hard time with this because i feel like i would want a diana Wynne jones character but i couldn't decide between howl from howl's moving castle or one of the or Crestomanche from the Crestomanche Chronicles. So probably Howl from Howl's Moving I'm Castle. Familiar, I'm not familiar with the second one. What was the second one you said um, there? Crestomanche. It's a series by Diana Wynne Jones, who wrote Howl's Moving Castle. It's he's a time a wizard who can go between alternate dimensions. I highly recommend them. They're very good books. But okay. we'll go with Howl from Howl's Moving Castle. Just for fun. Sounds like a good dinner party. It's very strange, but I would also like to see President Bartlett in a room with uh, Granny Weatherwax. And- oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be. I'm good. trying to. I'm trying to think of what his reaction would be to Granny Weatherwax. Like, would I he think- be intrigued? Would he be exactly like? It would be- uh, uh, yeah. What yeah. would his reaction be? Would we immediately have like a Mrs. Landingham situation where like this is the only one who can really stand up to President Bartlett? Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I think it'd be oh, interesting Mrs. to see Lanning. him with the, the Dowager Countess and debating the relative merits of aristocracy versus not <laughs> and <laughs> democracy and monarchy and all that. Interesting. There'd be huffiness all around. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Carissa, for joining us. And I think that is going to wrap up this episode. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice. And please leave us a review. That really helps us out. And we would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go and check out, well, I guess, uh, some of the episodes that we referenced in, while talking about this. Maybe the Hocus Pocus episode from last October or the uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell episode. 
episode from last October. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com or else on Twitter you can follow Protagonist Pod, Todd K. Mack, Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is uh, at DizMinute on Twitter. And Carissa, do you have any social media you want to shout out? No, I'm kind of a Luddite. <laughs> that is fine. <laughs> Uh, our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners and we would love for you to say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening. And we'll be back again next week to talk about another great character in a great story. So long. So long. See ya. We're glad you could join us and uh, just, uh, we would, oh, that was awkward. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> Giving him an edit moment here.